0: Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show.
2: Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimony shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc now. Here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Every single episode of the Preacher
0: Boys podcast has, to one level or another, been a difficult one to produce. We've heard shocking stories of rape, molestation, physical and mental abuse within independent fundamental Baptist churches. And while today's episode is no different, it gives us a clearer glimpse than normal at the level of spiritual manipulation often involved in these cases. On this episode, I sit down with Kathy Partridge, and she shares how her 46-year-old pastor, who was married with six children, abused her as a 15-, 16-, and 17-year-old girl. You're not just going to hear from Kathy on this episode. You're also going to hear from her mother, Brenda, and her husband, Abe, who joined her for moral support but also gave a lot of good insight themselves throughout the course of the episode. I'm really thankful that you're taking the time to tune in and I would encourage you to listen to the entirety of the interview. It's really, really powerful. And like I said, it reveals so much about how the grooming process actually looks and how pastors who abuse spiritually manipulate their victims. I really hope this episode is helpful to you, but before we get started, I do want to make one small note throughout the interview, Kathy mentions her age a few times and With these cases, it's normal for the timeline to get a little bit fuzzy. But after we record the episode, Kathy and her mother did the math and realized that she was probably about 15 years old when the abuse started. She turned 19 in her first few weeks of college. So while you're listening to the episode, keep that in mind. And without any further introduction, let's get into my interview with Kathy Partridge, her mother, Brenda, and her husband, Abe all right everybody welcome back to the preacher boys podcast kathy thank you so much for joining me on today's episode and really i i spend most of these conversations going back to how did you get introduced to the independent baptist movement and i know you weren't born into it like most of my guests including myself were born in that world grew up in that world Tell me a little bit about how you got introduced to the independent Baptist world.
3: I was introduced to Baptists, but they weren't independent Baptists when I was a little girl. They were Southern Baptists. And my aunt took me to Sunday school occasionally, and we would go to their revivals. And I remember it being like really great. The music was great and the people were friendly. And it was more like an upbeat atmosphere because where we went to church was Methodist and it was more solemn. And I remember liking that better because it wasn't boring to me. And then, but we didn't go very often because she lived like 45 minutes from us. So we would just go in like the high points. And then when I went, my, my mom and dad got divorced when I was like nine and there was a church that came by our house when I was probably 14 years old, knocked on the door going visitation. And my mom was, I'm a twin, and my mom was at her wits end with my twin sister. She was having issues, and she was just literally just trying to find anyone to help or anything to help. And so she agreed to come to a service at Faith Bible Baptist Church on, in Stevensville, Maryland, and it was on an island called Kent Island in Chesapeake Bay. And so that was the first time that I had ever heard there was a Baptist church near where we lived. And so I was excited because I had memories as a child going to my aunt's church that was Baptist. And that was our first experience with independent fundamental Baptists. It was a new church. It was new. Yeah. Mm. And they, were, they didn't actually have a building. We met in an elementary school that I went to school at when I was um, little. because yeah, there was, was a, a
4: church plant. Yeah, it was a church
3: plant. land. So mm-hmm. we met in the cafeteria of that elementary school.
0: What was the experience there? Did you like it there? Was it somewhere you enjoyed going in those early days?
3: When I first walked in, it definitely wasn't what I was expecting to. I'm like, really? It's in a school? And that it just kind of felt weird because it wasn't like my aunt's church. But I went anyway. I wasn't, I was okay with it. It was just not, I, I, don't, I remember feeling like I really don't want to come here but I'll come here because my sister needs help.
4: I remember feeling that. She had emotional problems. She had been sure. going to Shepherd's yes. Mental Hospital. Mm-hmm. She was put out of school. She had to have a stay there, and she was self-inflicting herself, and there was serious problems.
3: The second visit, we got without getting into that. It was an ordeal that day with yeah. trying to get her delivered from all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so... She professed faith in Christ that day after the ordeal. And then she, we went home and basically cleaned our house of anything that was related to those things that would bother her. No. And so we threw things away and basically cleaned house. And that was a really traumatic experience for me to witness all that. And it, to have a change just like that. She went to school the next day with a Bible, and dyed her hair blonde, and got rid of everything, and just like trying to tell people that God saved her. And I just remember feeling like shocked and scared and embarrassed at the same time, and like what in the world's happening? And then I never thought that I didn't have a relationship with the Lord. I always thought I was a good person. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really taught the gospel, and when I saw that, it was it was like an overload because it was like. That and then the gospel. And then I felt like it was pressured on me. If mm. I didn't do, if I didn't do it, if I didn't ask the Lord in my heart and get saved, that all those bad things could enter me and mm. you know, change me and I would go to hell and stuff like that. So I was, a, and I sort of kind of, made a, I, I made a profession of faith because that's what I thought I had to do. But mm. I uh, didn't really understand it all at the time.
5: How long after y'all first go and whenever you started adopting all the IFB standards and stuff?
3: I went to high school, like my ninth grade year. And then by my 10th grade year, I was really, we were really involved in the church and I was being taught a lot of things. And so I started feeling really uncomfortable at public school because that's, I was taught that Public school was not a good place to go. They don't teach you the Bible, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so I felt guilty for going there. And also I felt like it was a bad thing to be there. And so I wanted to homeschool. And we started fellowshipping, our church, started fellowshipping with another church in Clinton, Maryland, and with their youth. That was independent. Um, Independent Baptist Church in Clinton, Maryland. And we started fellowshipping with their youth, and I made friends with their kids, and we would go to like youth camp and stuff with them. So we felt like we were like a small branch off of their big church in Clinton.
4: Sure. And
3: once I got really involved in that circle of youth, that's when I thought, okay, that's when I was totally in it. I was, yeah. I adopted everything. I was, hundred percent independent fundamental Baptist and I believed everything they believed and and I wanted to do I wanted to please the Lord and my pastor and do whatever I started homeschooling my last two years of high school my hmm. mom allowed me to do that and my sister and I ended up graduating early earlier than my actual high school class and because I graduated early, I decided I wanted to take some Bible college courses before I was able to go to crown college. So we would go up there like once a week and go to get some, Hmm. do some classes.
0: Yeah. You mentioned obviously having this switch, you're starting really these last two pivotal years before college, really buying in making it your own and wanting to please God, wanting to please the pastor. Tell me a little bit about the pastor at the church and his personality, what he was like and how that connection to him developed in those last two years.
3: His name was um, Timothy George and he had, he was married and had six children and they were all my friends and I was particularly close to his daughter and I basically spent most of my time with them whenever they would have any kind of family function. They would invite my sister and I or any kind of youth thing. We were there with them. They were my life basically because Hmm. my mom, like I said, my mom and dad got divorced when I was nine and then he ended up moving to Louisiana. So I had a good relationship with my dad, but it was up and down. He had issues of his own and I didn't see him, but maybe twice a year. So I really was lacking that father figure in my life. And I looked up to Timothy George as a father figure. Hmm. And he also said, since your dad is not here and he's not around, I'll take you under my wing, too. You can be my kid, too. He treated me like he treat exactly like he treated his daughters and his sons. And I felt like I was a part of them, like I was a part of I had a father figure in my life.
5: In fact, in his letters, he refers to himself as Pastor Papa.
0: Yeah. Again, in the moment feels like an answer to prayer. It's another opportunity where this is replacing or filling a need that was there. And I think that's what, obviously we talked a little bit before, and I think that's, what's frustratingly sad about your story and, and so many, and I know we're just scratching the surface is all of these stories position themselves with a positive thing. First, something that feels like it's helpful or something that feels like it's going to be this positive change. And there's so much leverage used against people that are in difficult situations or going through difficult life circumstances. What was the first time that you remember having that sense of security or that, that shaken, or the first time you saw a red flag where you felt like something's not quite right here?
3: I don't remember exactly how old I was. I think I was maybe 16 or 17. I don't remember probably more like 17, but by that time, several years had passed with us constantly being with them all the time. And we, I remember it snowed and we all decided we were going to go sledding and we gathered at a place where there was a hill. And I remember us all going down the hill together, sometimes by ourselves, sometimes with someone And I remember he was going to go down the hill and I jumped on the sled with him and we went down the hill. And then when we landed, when we crashed the sled, I remember his hand inappropriately going in between my legs Hmm. and I moved really quick. And I was like, I, that's the first time I felt like really weird, like it wasn't right. Something wasn't right, but I couldn't. I didn't, I'm not supposed to judge and I didn't want to think that it was anything bad. So I just brushed it off and thought, oh, he didn't mean to, we just, we just came down the hill. He didn't mean to do that. So I jumped up really quick and I felt really weird the rest of the time, but didn't really, I tried to talk myself out of it. Like it wasn't anything.
0: Did you feel like it was just a misunderstanding on your part or did you know in the back of your head, oh, that wasn't right?
3: He never really gave me reason to think it was inappropriate before that, but the way it happened, it just was like, and it might've just been because I was becoming a woman and maturing and stuff like that. But I was just like, it just made me feel weird, really weird. It wasn't just a, oh, it was like, it was there a little bit too much, too long. And then right. it was just like, and then I got up.
0: Yeah. What what was the window from that to um, obviously you mentioned that there was a meeting, like a Bible study. What was the length of time between this and, and that happening?
3: I I don't really know. I don't know that answer could have been a couple months. It could have been a year. I don't really know that it was, it was a bit of a distance before that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you had this Bible study. There's people from the church there, Describe what happened there and and what led to this kind of meeting with everybody.
3: I just remember that after the prayer requests were all spoken, he said, I have a big prayer request. And he explained that he was going through something really bad and hard. And he, he needed the church to rally around him and lift his arms up like Moses and just pray for him fervently because there was just so something just so terrible and difficult. And it really took me off guard because I was spent so much time with them that I was like, really worried about it because I was like, why don't I know this? I couldn't figure out what in the world is so terrible that I don't know because I basically was part of their family and it, my father had threatened he had issues himself. He had threatened suicide a lot. He he was depressed a lot. And he would tell me he felt like I identified with him better and he could talk to me. So when my dad was upset, he would call me and talk to me Hmm. and tell me that he could talk to me, but he couldn't talk to my sister. And so he would unload on me sometimes about his feelings. And so I felt like I could help people, you know what I mean? Because I would talk to him, and then by the time our conversation would end, he would be laughing and in a better mood, and I thought, I could really help people. I could help my dad, I could help him. He's like my dad, you know? So I was really concerned about him not knowing what was so bad and so wrong, and I remember... The church gathering around him in a circle and just really praying. And I just remember crying while we were praying just because
4: I was so worried about him.
5: Did you even suspect that it was about I had
4: no clue. I had Hmm. no clue. I remember going back after that prayer meeting on Sunday morning and it was hot summertime and he was walking, pacing the sidewalks around the school Hmm. and he'd shake his head like he was praying. And then he just, you know, he was just hunched over and you could see he was burdened, but we had no idea, nothing.
3: Then the very next day is when I was alone at my house and I was getting ready for work and he came and knocked on the door and I had just got out of the shower. I had a robe on and my hair and a towel and I heard a knock on the door and I'm like normally would not answer the door especially in that attire and I looked out the window and I saw it was him and I almost didn't answer the door but something in me felt like What if I don't answer the door and this horrible thing that he's going through is I would regret not answering the door. I don't know why I thought that, but I just thought I have to answer the door. So I went to the door and I cracked the door open. he was about to leave. I remember he knocked on the door several times and at the last minute I opened the door and he was actually had turned around, headed down Mm -hmm. the steps. So he was standing at the bottom of the steps when I opened the door and I cracked it and I said, Hey, I'm sorry, but I just got out of the shower. Can you give me a minute? I'll go change. And I remember him saying, no, don't worry about that. I'm not going to be here that long. Just, I need to tell you something and I just need you to hear me out. And I thought, okay, you like, I was, I didn't know what to think. I was just like, what in the world is happening because of the night before. And that's when he proceeded to tell me that he loves me like a man loves a woman, not like a father loves a child. And I was like, what? I couldn't hardly process that information. I just stood there with my mouth open. I didn't know what to say. And he said, you don't have to do anything. You didn't do anything wrong. This is my problem. I just got quiet. I really didn't know what to say. And I, then finally, I just kept saying, what did I do? What did I do? Mm-hmm. I, don't, I just never saw it coming. I had no idea. Yeah. Other than that, like months before of him maybe touching me and I brushed it off. Like it was an accident. But mm-hmm. other than that, I had no clue. And he kept saying, it's not your fault. You didn't do one thing. Stop saying that or whatever. And he said, I felt this way about you for a while now. And I'm repented of it. And I'm trying to get over it. And, and I just came here to ask your forgiveness for feeling that way about you. And I said, okay, I forgive you. I didn't know. He said, please don't tell anyone that I came here. Please don't tell them what I told you. He said, and I quote, he said, you need to take it to your grave. Mm. And that's when he said that, that's when I got really scared. And I didn't know how to feel about that because of my dad's relationship, mine and my dad's relationship, and always feeling like I have to help him, and so he, and his threats of suicide and his depression, I thought, oh no, he's going through the same thing my dad goes through, and I have to help him. Or and I had I cared about him. He was like a dad to me, so I didn't want to do anything to hurt him or. But I didn't know what to do. And so I thought, okay, like I was just like, okay, I promise I won't tell anyone. I promise I won't. And he's like, if anyone finds out about this, it will just ruin me. It'll ruin my marriage. It'll ruin the church. This is between me and you and God. And I'm telling you, I'm sorry. And let it end here. And I'm like, okay, he left my house and I shut the door. And I remember just busting into tears and just not knowing what to do and feeling so alone. Because I thought about it for a really long time and I thought, I can't tell anybody, I promised him. If I did, it would ruin the church. It would ruin my family and our trust in the church. And my uncle was going through divorce at the time. He was living with us. And the church was his only positive thing in his life at that Mm -hmm. moment. And I thought, if I tell anyone, it would ruin him too. So I just felt like the whole weight was on my shoulders and I couldn't do a thing about it. And so I tried to talk myself into pretending that nothing happened. Just act like nothing happened. Yeah. Because if I act any different, then somebody's going to be like, what's wrong with you? And they'll ask me. And then I was afraid I couldn't hide it. So I thought, "I'm just he, he said he was sorry and that's it. And I'm just going to pretend like it never happened that's what I did. The very next service was probably Sunday morning service. And I just went there and acted like I never even heard those words come out of his mouth. I, I, his children, like we had a close relationship to where he treated me exactly like his children. So he would tickle his children. He tickled me. He tickled my sister. He would let me sit on his lap with his children I would be on one leg and his daughter would be on another and we would we would interact that way as fathers and daughters do sometimes. I didn't think a thing of it. And so I thought, if I don't do what I always do with his children, then people are going to be like, what's wrong with her? So I just pretended it never happened. That's how I thought I would get through it because I knew that in a few months I would be going to college and I wouldn't have to pretend anymore. I could just not be there.
0: Did that affect your relationship with his kids, with his daughter? Did you ever feel like you wanted to say something to her or or talk to her about it?
3: I never wanted to because I knew it would hurt her. And
5: I. Kathy's the kind of person that always thinks about everybody else in the room before she thinks about herself. Mm -hmm.
3: And she was like my best friend. so I didn't, even after everything came to light, I saw her walking down the road. She was pet sitting and I saw her and she brought something up and I got angry. What she said to me was, I forgive you. And I got so mad because I was like, you forgive me? I was like, you have no idea what your dad did to me. And I started to tell her and then I stopped myself and I said, you know what? I love you and I still love you. And I would never want to hurt you. And you still have to live with this man. So I'm not going to say anything else about it. And I said, I wish you the best, but we're, I'll probably never talk to you again. And that was the last but time this, I saw her. And
5: this was after,
3: after was, everything, everything
0: came out. You're living now with the weight of all of this secrecy that he's placed on you. Tell me a little bit just about moving forward with that. You've got a couple months left before college. How did that play out going to these activities with him going it's a small church so you're around all the time. What was that like and did he continue mentioning it? Did he continue bringing it up? What was the how did that progress over time?
3: So, I think it was probably a few weeks maybe three or four weeks after he had came out to me about that and i just interacted like i said with him like i had always interacted and then nothing was ever brought up again and then we just then the church planned to have a youth group outing just our youth and at their house and they lived Their backyard, it was a pretty big piece of property and their backyard budded up to the Chesapeake Bay. Mm -hmm. It was the bay, but it was 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 water. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they were going to have like hot dogs and marshmallows and sleep in tents and swim in the bay and watch movies. And it was like like a fun last thing to do before we all split up and went our ways to college and stuff. I had a, fr- a close friend that I'm still friends with. He, his name's Danny, and he was part of the youth group, and he worked with me at where I worked at Kmart on the island. He came and pastors children and some other youth that I'm friends with still. They were there, and we all decided before it got dark we wanted to go swimming. And so we all went down there, modestly dressed in our culottes and stuff, and, and jumped in the water and were playing around, throwing a ball. I can't remember exactly everything we did, but we, I remember that came to a point where we were wrestling. And I think we were either fighting over a ball or we were playing chicken or something like that. And I believe the pastor, Timothy George, was playing with his children, like dunking them under the water. And then my sister tried to grab him and pull him under the water. And I remember him coming and dunking me under the water. And when I was under the water, he held me down and tried to kiss me under the water. And that was the first physical contact he tried to have with me after he told me that he loved me like a man loves a woman. And then I remember coming up out of the water and being so mad, like furious, that I knew what he was doing then. That was no mistake. It wasn't an accident with him trying to wrestle with me or something. He purposely tried to kiss me under the water and I knew he tried to, and it made me really mad. And so I didn't care at that point what people thought. I just got out of the water and I got my towel and I just started heading back toward the house purpose that I was not going to be near him the rest of the evening. At this time, his wife never really interacted with the youth. She was always preparing the meals or in the house working. His wife never really was a part of everything like he was. She wasn't involved. She was like a behind-the-scenes person. Mm. So she was not down there when there was swimming she was not around the youth when we would go to the camps and the youth group outings she was never there she always stayed home and they had a young daughter so she always stayed at home or behind the scenes she never was around yeah. and so she, while we were swimming she was at the house making preparing food or making dessert or whatever And I I always liked his wife. I looked up to her. I thought she was a a godly woman and she was intelligent and had great ideas about things. And I looked up to her, but I didn't spend as much time with her because she was always, like I said, behind the scenes. Yeah. When I went back to the house to get changed, she was in the kitchen and she asked if everything was okay. And I said, yeah, everything's fine. I was just tired. I didn't want to swim anymore. And... I got changed. And by the time I went back outside, everyone else was heading back to the house. They were finished swimming. And so he acted like nothing ever happened. And we got the hot dogs out and the marshmallows and we did that. And then everybody said, hey, let's watch a movie. And so we all went inside to watch a movie. And they had a couch like here and then there was a doorway like right here and then their tv was out front and then so all the youth sat down here and i walked in the doorway and faith sat on the couch then he came and sat by faith on the couch and then he asked me to sit with them so faith was here he was in the middle i was on the other side by the doorway and we were watching the movie i got really drowsy and i fell asleep. And I remember sleeping and then all of a sudden being woken up by feeling his hand on my breast. And I froze because I didn't, And I was, I probably was shaking because I was, I didn't know what to do, but I kept my eyes shut because I didn't want him to know that I knew what he was doing. And I also didn't want to draw attention to myself because the other youth were in the room. I later found out they were also asleep because when I woke up and I felt what he was doing, I just laid there with my eyes shut. And then I heard the movie ended. And then when the movie ended, he took his hand away quickly and he said, "Well, the movie's over, everybody wake up, time to go to bed, get in your tent. And so then everybody's like drowsy waking up and they said, okay. And so I got up and I stood there and then I got my stuff and I went to my tent with the girls and I went to bed and I could hardly sleep because I was so upset because I didn't know what to do. But I just wanted to pretend like I didn't, I wanted him to think that I didn't know. So I never brought it up ever to him. And I went to bed and then my alarm went off in the morning. I unzipped my tent. I stood up and there he was waiting for me. And I said, oh, good morning. And he had coffee in his hand and he said, would you like a cup of coffee? Because I had to get ready to go to work. And I almost didn't go to the youth meet group meeting because I wanted to use the whole work thing as an excuse not to go. But I remember my mom or my sister saying, "Come on, it'll be fun. You'll, re- you'll be okay." Or and I just remember not wanting to argue and saying, "Okay." They would probably think, "What's wrong with her not wanting to go to this?" I always went to everything. Right. Anytime the opportunity presented itself, I was there. You know. Yeah. So I I got up and I he put his arm around me and he walked me to his house. And he said his, I, I believe his wife was still asleep. I don't remember, but they had a two story house. So she was probably upstairs, but he had woke up. And he came down there and he put his arm around me, walked me in the house, asked me if I needed anything, if he could help me get ready. And I said, no, I'm good. I can do it myself. And he said, okay, I'm always here for you. And I said, okay. And so I, went upstairs to get a shower and their bathroom, it was a really old house and they only had one bathroom and it was upstairs. I think they only had one bathroom. I just remember being a very old house. Most old houses don't have two bathrooms. So I went up there and the way it was set up was you go up the stairs and here's the bathroom and there's a door to go in the bathroom, but also in the bathroom is another door going into Mm -hmm. the main bedroom so there was two doors to the bathroom and, it, and their master bedroom was on the other side of the other door. And if you didn't lock that door and there were really old doors, like with old doorknobs and they're yeah. rickety. And I just remember purposely locking that door. Cause some, I had this really bad feeling after what happened to me the night before that he would try to come in there. And so I locked the door, and I locked the other door. I wasn't in the shower, but three minutes maybe, and I heard a noise. I pulled the curtain back, and I can see the doorknob doing this. And I started freaking out because I thought, oh, my goodness, what if this door lock doesn't hold? And so I just shut the curtain and I literally probably got out of the shower still soap in my hair. I was so afraid of him coming in that I didn't even finish rinsing probably good. And I just got out, dried off super quick, threw my clothes on and ran down the stairs. By that time, some of my, his daughter was in the house and my sister woke up. And so I just said, bye everybody, I'm going to work. He was down there and he says, can I get you anything to go? How about something to eat? And I said no, and I was just ready to just leave. And so I got in my car and I went to work. This all kind of happened quickly because I was, and when I say quickly, I'm thinking maybe a few months before I actually went to college. I remember my mom saying he told her the reason why he did what he did is because he realized I was about to leave And he was gonna miss me. And so that's why all this started happening all at once at the end, Hmm. before I left. And so that was, that happened, and it was probably just a week or two later when he asked me to meet him privately during my lunch break because he wanted to apologize to me Hmm. for what had happened of him telling me how he feels and all this. And I thought, okay, yeah, I was super gullible. And I might've been 17 physically, but I was so sheltered because my mother didn't talk to me about boys and dating and stuff like that because she had also experienced abuse by her own grandfather. And so she was, that was like something she didn't want to talk to me about. So when I would ask questions about things, she would change the subject or cut me off. And so I had no clue about anything really. And even though I was 14 or 15 before I actually experienced IFB, I wasn't like that in my Like mature that way. I didn't think that way. I didn't understand things. I was very sheltered. Yeah. And so I was like um, really afraid of him because of him telling me to take things to my grave. And also, he was my pastor and like a father figure to me. And I respected him that way. I cared about what God thought about me and he used the Lord and that he manipulated the scriptures in the Bible to make me feel like I had to do what he said. I remember he called me at my job and he said he wanted to meet me and he wanted to apologize to me, but he didn't want to do it over the phone. He wanted to do it in person. So he asked me to meet him at a park near the Chesapeake Bay called Terrapin Park. And on my lunch break, and he said it wouldn't take long. He just really wanted to talk to me in person. And so everything in me did not want to go there. Hmm. But I thought well, it's a public place, and there's going to be people there, and it'll be okay, and I'll just listen to what he has to say, and I'll, I'll just, that'll be it, and it won't happen again. And so I agreed to meet him, and I met him at Terrapin Park. I remember getting out of my car and he hugged me and he said, you want to go for a walk? And when I I remember when I pulled up there, there was no one there, just me and him. I should have listened to these red flags I was getting, but I didn't do it. I just thought, well, let me just get this over with. And so just me and him, I got out of the car. He hugs me, asked me if I want to go for a walk and I say, okay. And so we start walking down this trail and there was like a little, I don't know what it was, but it was like a rest area, like a duck blind looking thing. But it was like to, it was enclosed. It had a doorway and it was enclosed. And then there was like a little window where you could observe birds or something. And there was a bench in there. And so he set me, he said, let's sit here and let's talk. And so I remember going in that little dark place and just like feeling dread. But I went in there and I sat down and he starts talking to me. I have no clue what he talked to me about. I wasn't really paying attention. And then I remember him asking me if he could kiss me. And I was like, I don't know. I didn't know what to say. There's nobody there. There's, I'm by myself with him and I'm afraid of him because of what, he t- because what he's been doing to me and what he told me. And so I said, I don't know. And he said, this is the only time I'll ever do this. And I just need to get it over with. And I think that'll just end my feelings and it'll be done. And um, he asked me if he could. And I said, okay, like that. And so then he kissed me. I remember feeling really scared. Yeah. And then he said, we don't need to sit in here. Let's go for, a, let's walk a little bit more. And I said, okay. We left that place and we walked down the trail a little bit more and it opens up to a small beach where you can see the Bay Bridge on the Chesapeake Bay. And I was, remember thinking maybe somebody's on this beach. Maybe someone will be out here and he won't bother me again. And I got out to this beach and there was not a soul. And I remember feeling just dread. And we walked to this area and I remember him sitting, I don't remember what how we got here, but I do remember being on the sand, laying down, and he disrobed me from my waist up. Everything was, I was just, Look, staring at the sky. I remember looking at the Bay Bridge like my, I didn't look at him ever. And he um, fondled me. And after he had his way, he told me I could put my shirt back on. And I did. And he said, I'm really sorry that I did that. But I do love you. At this point, I was just numb. I didn't know what to say. I didn't really talk. He said, we're never going to do this again, so I'm really sorry, and let's just end this now, and I said, okay, and he said, I know you have to get back to work, so I'll walk you back to your car, and I said, okay, and he walked me back to my car, and I got in the car, and I went to work, and I cried the whole way there to work, Mm. and I couldn't hardly do my job. He didn't meet me for a while, but I think he was writing letters and telling me, trying to justify himself of why he was doing what he did and how it was okay. And I do remember asking him, what about Miss Mary Faith? What about yeah. her? Because I knew that he's married. Okay, number one, he's married and he's messing with around with me that's not right. My, my mom and dad got a divorce. I know what adultery was. <laughs> I knew that. And I was like, this is not right. He shouldn't be doing this. And I, But at that age, I'm, th- I'm thinking, I, ne- I never thought I'm a child because of my age, even though I was a child in my head. But you were
5: 17.
3: I remember thinking, I can't go to the cops because I'm a, basically an adult now. I, I didn't know what to do. I was really messed up in my head. And so I remember his letters justifying why he was doing what he's doing, using Bible stories, telling me David had, Abraham had a concubine and David had a young girl and he used to sleep next to him to keep him warm when he was old. And so you're like that girl. and And then I'm like, I was thinking, but what about Miss Mary Faith? And he would always change the subject. Um, about his wife and he would just brush it off. Oh, this doesn't really involve her. He would just make up all kinds of excuses and use the Bible. And then every time he would ask me to forgive him, he would tell me that it was my fault if I didn't forgive him. And that, and then he even says it again in this letter he wrote me that I would be making a gross mistake, and if I didn't forgive him, and I would have an unforgiving spirit with hatred and bitterness, bitterness, and that I would not have fellowship with God if I didn't forgive him, let alone answered prayer. And and he said it was him that was he was part of my salvation and if it wasn't for him I'd surely be on my way to hell right now and he would use those manipulate me that way. He's not only my pastor, I feel like he's my dad. I have to I'm a woman. Women are supposed to be submissive. So I felt like he if I didn't just do what he wanted that I was being disobedient so I felt like that was my job and I felt like I had to be this martyr Mm. and just do what he wanted then he had asked me again to meet him and at this time when he asked me to meet him he said to meet him he knew a spot that no one goes and it's quiet and he it was on the side of a road somewhere I don't remember the location but he told me where to go and I remember pulling into the location and it being just woods and this small little trail. And he told me to pull my car down this little trail in the woods. And I, when I did that, I was just shaking because I thought like the park, at least I could have screamed and somebody somewhere might've heard me. But I don't, this is, I don't know. I've seen scary movies. It's like back in the woods going down this trail. I was really afraid. And I got down there and he had laid a blanket down and told me to, to come with him and sit on the blanket. And he, I don't know if he had brought me lunch or whatever. I don't remember that part. All I remember is he also kissed me and disrobed me again and did what he wanted to do with me again. And then I went back to work.
4: Hmm. And then
3: my mind goes blank after that. I don't remember how long it was if you have a question,
0: I can't. No. And that, and, and like I said before, that's normal. That's a normal thing. And, and it's, I've talked to so many people on mic and off mic who everything's a blur. You remember certain things, you remember the feeling of it, you remember, and then it's like date or time or is just a mess. It's, it's not even there. And I I think what's really powerful about your story, and I think what's really scary about your story is that you weren't just groomed by him. It was the entire structure around you was positioned against you. It was the the way you were taught about yourself as a woman, the way you were sheltered from having these conversations, the way that you were taught about just the basics of forgiveness and the gospel. And it was all and most of that was coming from him, but it was all stacked against you. It was like, he had you spiritually under his thumb. He had you in every way possible had the power.
3: I asked him like, why me? Cause yeah. I have a twin sister. We kind of look alike. and he said, I could have never gotten close to Jenny. Like I can with you. Mm-hmm. And in that way, I knew what he meant because my sister is very vocal and I'm a very, I, at the time, I'm a little bit better now, but at the time, I was a very timid, gullible, quiet kid, and I've had so many people take advantage of me because I just, I'm always wanting to help people. I'm still that way, and I always want to please people, help them, make them happy. And I think it stems from my childhood and my father trying to make him happy and trying to feel like I can help somebody because I tried to help him. And I I think he saw that I was vulnerable and, and he took advantage of that. And I remember now, I don't know the time span, but the very last time he met me was back at the park. And he asked me to come meet him again and that he just wanted to, he wasn't going to touch me. He wasn't going to kiss me. He just had to give me something that he promised me that surely was not going to happen. And he said, please meet me. I know you probably don't want to, but please meet me. I have something for you. I said, okay, this is the last time. And so he said, I promise. And he said, I said, okay. So I went and met him again at this park, and there, there was, thank goodness, I remember a car parked there besides his car and mine. And I got, he said, it's, I think it was hot outside, I don't remember. He just asked me to get in his van, it was either hot or cold, and he said to get, get in my van, I promise uh, nothing, nothing's going to happen, just let's sit in my van and talk. And so I say, okay, and I get in his van, And I'm looking at him and he pulls out this gold bracelet and it has my name on it, Catherine. The thing is that everyone that has always called me Kathy, that's my nickname. Everyone has always called me Kathy. He's the only one who started to really call me Catherine. And that is my name, but I don't know why he started calling me that other than it sounds older, maybe like oh. it, Tim. So he had my name, Catherine on the bracelet. And then you, I remember, I don't know the exact words, but I remember when you flipped it over, it was a song. I think it was like a song of Solomon short verse, but it was like only you and me know what this means kind of thing. And he also gave my sister at a different time excuse me he gave her something to make it to where i could wear my bracelet out in the open in public and she would no one would question it because jenny got one too it was a going away college present but only i knew what the underside meant and then he wrote me some i think he wrote me a poem or some letter I don't remember exactly. I remember it sounding like he quoted Song of Solomon stuff, talking about my physical appearance yeah. and I got it. said so thank you. Got out of the car, went back to work. And I remember when I got home, I had this little place in my closet that was like a piece of wood was cut out of the wall And I remember shoving the bracelet and the letters and the card he gave me. I remember just shoving it in the wall and hiding it, hoping that my mom would never find it or see it. And I was gonna wait for a grand opportunity to burn it or get rid of it somehow when she wasn't there. So she wouldn't find any kind of evidence of anything like that. And I, I remember destroying it, but I don't remember what I did. But anyway, it was destroyed. I got rid- I threw the bracelet away and I threw I burned the letters or whatever I did. And so I don't have those anymore. We packed up, went to college. Timothy George gave my mom his van to move us to college to hold all our things. And my, remember my mom and my aunt driving us to Crown College. And I remember just feeling like this huge relief, like I'm leaving and this is over.
0: Yeah. Crown College know. was the escape. That was the plan, was to hold it together till yeah. getting to Crown.
3: Yeah. yeah. And so I... My so my sister and I moved into Crown College in the girls' dorms, and I was there a few weeks. And I remember the first week being there, he would call the dorm phone and ask to speak to me. And then he wouldn't speak to my sister, and I remember her getting upset with it about that. Like, mm. why didn't he speak to me? He, he, didn't, that's not fair. He called you and talked to you, and not me. Yeah. And I'm like, we had to go. I, I didn't know what to say. But she would find out that he would call me and not talk to her. Yeah. And so I remember saying, do you want to talk to Jenny now? And he would say, no, just tell her I said hi. And then I would say, you're really making her upset by not talking to her. And at that time, I was trying to play it like, you're away from me. So I'm not going to act like any, any way with you. I'm just going to I wasn't happy to hear from him I just answered the phone and listened to what he had to say and then up the phone I asked a lot of times I would ask to speak to my friend or her sister and I would I wanted to talk to them really not him and yeah. so I would take most of my phone call up talking to them and then I would then he'd get back on the phone and Obviously they were in the room with him. So he wouldn't say anything off color to me and he would just say, we miss you. Bye. We love you. I said, okay, bye. And then he, then I would get letters in the mail and they were the ones that talked to me like nothing had ever changed and how his, he felt about me still. He still loves me and feelings and all this. How often
0: did you get those letters from him?
3: Probably. I don't know for sure. That's a blur, but I'm thinking pretty often. I probably got, so I was only at Crown, what, maybe a month,
4: maybe? At least maybe three weeks. So I probably got one
3: almost every week, maybe three or four letters. And I am i can't say for a fact because I don't have them anymore because I got rid of them. I didn't want my sister to see them, but my I don't know what happened to the letter she found, but this she... That's it. That's that right okay. There. This letter right here, my mom kept. And I didn't know that until just recently when I told her that I was thinking about contacting you and telling you my story. She said, I know you don't know this, but I kept the letter. The letters speaking of this letter. And he also wrote my sister a letter mm. later. And But I said, you did? And she said, yeah, I kept them. And I said, okay. And I hadn't read them until... Right before I talked to you, I we called each other, so I can't. It's like blows my mind what he says to me in the letter. But anyway, my so my sister happened to intercede. We shared a mailbox, and she got to the mailbox before I did, and she saw a letter from him addressed to her to me, not her, but just to me. And she thought maybe he's just sending it to her just to get in the mailbox, and she opens it up and reads the letter
4: Hmm. and
3: she's she's really upset and so after class that evening she approaches me crying and says Kathy what does this mean what does this letter mean and I started crying and I was like I can't tell you and she's what are you talking about I I just can't tell you And I just didn't know what to say. And she's, you are going to tell me. And you're going to tell mom. You're going to tell me right now. And then you're going to call and you're going to tell mom. And I was like, I don't want to. I just don't just ignore it. I don't want to talk about it. And she's no, you're telling me right now. And she was very insistent that I tell her. So she ran back. So I, they did not put us together. We were in the same dorm, but we were not in the same room. My sister Mm -hmm. and I were separated. So I was on one side of the dorm and she was on the other in another room. And I just remember her running back to her room and just screaming and crying to where every single person in that entire dorm could hear her. Mm -hmm. And they were all like, what's happening? What's going on? Which embarrassed me even more because I, I just was like nothing. And my sister, my her dorm roommates were coming to me saying, "Your sister is crying hysterically, rocking on the floor. I have no idea what's wrong with her. Is she okay?" And I was just like, and went back into the mode of helping someone because I also had to help my sister several times not kill herself. I've, you know, chased her down before and sat on her so she wouldn't run into a road and get hit by a car. <laughs> So I ran into the room and I held my sister and said, it's going to be okay. Even though I'm the one who all this happened to, you know, and tried to comfort her. And she's, you're going to tell me. So I finally told her privately, I asked her to please stop crying and to promise me that she would not make any more scene. Yeah. And I told her what happened. And then she said, you're going to tell mom right now, we're going to call her and you're going to tell her everything.
4: Yeah.
3: And I said, well, he told me I couldn't tell anybody. He told me to take it to my grave. And she said, no, you're telling mom. And we're going to get, he does not deserve to stay where he's at in that pulpit. He's mm-hmm. wrong. And I was like, okay. And I remember saying too, that just let it go. We're not there anymore. We're, This is over. We're not probably ever going to see him again. We're going to go to college and we're only going to see him on breaks. And then we're probably going to get married or whatever. How little college girls think they're going to get married and stuff. And just my life, I won't ever have to see him again. And I try to convince her of that just because I I still was afraid of the effect it was going to have on everyone. And in my family and in the church, I knew it was just going to be like over for every everything over. And I just and she's now so I, I let her talk me into calling my mom. And I remember, I I told her everything on the phone. And I remember her crying too. And just being she's I didn't even know I, I couldn't tell anything. I didn't. It was just all right there under my nose. And I didn't even know. And it hurt her the most because of the abuse she suffered from her grandfather. She constantly made sure that we were always protected and we were never in a bad situation, that a bad thing could happen. We were so sheltered. And like I said, she wouldn't even talk to us about things. So for this to happen to me under her nose was just devastating to her. And especially by the man of God, who you trust. Right. And so that's when she arranged to come down to the college and talk to Pastor Sexton, Clarence Sexton. He was uh, the pastor and the president of the Crown College at the time. I don't know if he still is. I have no idea. I yeah, thank
0: you. Uh, he still is. Yeah.
4: My sole purpose was to console her and Yeah. her at first, but I knew I had to do something right. um, to pursue what had happened, and I didn't know what to do, yeah. but um, I thought, you know, what better than to ask Clarence Sexton what he would do or what the church would do? I, I just yeah. I wasn't at
0: That's something I think is valuable. I know we talked about this before recording, but I think that's something A lot of people can resonate with. And it's probably, there's probably two sides of people listening. There's people that are listening going, well, obviously go to the police or obviously go report here. And then the other half would go, that's exactly what I did or would have done is go to the other man of God and ask what to do. And I think it's important hearing these stories to realize most people don't know what to do in these situations. Most churches don't prepare you for this. Most, and I think it's easy in retrospect to beat ourselves up or beat someone else up about it, what they did or didn't do. But I think church leaders really let people down and how they inform them of how to approach this kind of stuff. And it makes sense in your case, why it wasn't taught the proper way to handle situations like this, but going to crown college, going to console your daughter and going to meet with Clarence Sexton, what was the response from that, what was the response from bringing this shocking information to him?
4: He suggested that I go back to Maryland and I find a church that we I trusted and that we had fellowship with, hmm. um, and go to that pastor there at that church and explain the story to him and hmm. see if he could help me. And well, that's what I did.
0: Yeah, and what was the advice? When you went to this other church and you went to Independent Baptist Church, which he had fellowship with before, Pastor Mike Creed, what was his advice or response when this was brought to him? And he was very familiar with your church. So he knew of your church and was
4: together. He knew Pastor Timothy George. They did things together with our youth groups and everything. I was pretty close to Pastor Mike Creed's
3: daughter, Sarah, also. Uh-huh. We were good friends. I even stayed at his house once. Um, with Sarah, and we d- had, I would come to her. We would do sports and stuff together. So I would, he knew me very well, and my sister, and
4: our church, and hmm. Pastor Timothy George.
0: Yeah. And what was his advice or counsel?
4: My creed suggested that we call Timothy George on the telephone and put him on speaker and confront him. So that's what happened. And we questioned him about the things that Kathy had told me and what he had done to her. And with that, um, with him on speaker, he stated he was guilty of falling in love with Kathy and having feelings for her as a woman, not as a daughter or even a church member. And so we continued the questioning. And then when it was all said and done, Mike Creed said, To Timothy George, you'll have to step down and not preach because of what's happened. And he said, yes, I know. So that Sunday, I was on the road to Knoxville or to Powell, Tennessee, to college to be with my girls. And Timothy George stepped down Mm. Um, and there was no pastor for the church. And later on, didn't you go into the church and tell the church what he did to On a Wednesday night, I explained to the church before I left for Tennessee Mm -hmm. what had happened because I wanted to make sure he was going to step in. Yeah. So as briefly as I could without getting in it all involved. Before that, though, you had him come over to the house and he brought. Yes, I had. (laughs) When I found out or he found out actually that Jenny had read the letter because she called him and confronted him. He then called me and he said, I know what's going on. Jenny's been in contact with me. She's read a letter I sent to Kathy and he asked me if he could come and talk to me. Mm -hmm. And um, he came that very next day, which was a Saturday. I was off of work. And when he came, I wouldn't even let him in the house. I just was... I was just distraught. <laughs> I was mad at myself for not seeing things and I was just distraught that all this was happening, but I was also upset for my daughter. Yeah. And the same feelings went through my mind. This is our church family and his wife and his children. And this is a mess, but I was just very upset with him and I wouldn't let him in. And that was when he said that he had sinned and he was praying for forgiveness from God for his sin and he asked me to forgive him and he said he was distraught because God wasn't taking this away from him. He just loved Kathy like a man loves a woman and I I was just, it was right under my nose and I never saw it, never at all. They were just like a family, very kind, very helpful to us. In homeschooling, Kathy and Jenny Went to Evansville, Indiana, and recorded a CD.
3: And my sister had wrote some songs. She played guitar, and she had wrote some songs. And he was adamant that we go record them at Faith
4: Music Missions, mm-hmm. and, in Indiana.
5: Mm.
4: And and his wife went. He, his wife, and myself, and Kathy and Jenny, and their daughter Faith, that they were close to, we went. Oh. We had several days. They were looking at colleges on the way. We were just close. It was a close group, and I would have never, even with my defenses up, I would have never thought this was going on or happening.
0: So the letter that you found that you have now, because everything else is gone, that was sent after all of this came forward? That was after he stepped down, or was this?
5: This is the letter that that initiated the uh, whole.
0: the one, the one that was sent Mr. to the college.
5: Mr. Red, yes.
4: At Crown College. And they hadn't been there long because this is dated September the 6th, right. 2001. And okay. they were only there a couple of weeks right. and had started classes. And that's the letter he wrote her because she was not answering his phone calls. Hmm. So he is telling her how heartbroken he is. And And, I did this
3: for you, and that. Yeah, and then he
4: is listing all the many things he had done for her, and giving her a guilt trip on all of this. And then he starts quoting scriptures of what Mm -hmm. she is doing. And
3: then he tells me that uh, he knows how Christ felt when Judas betrayed him with a kiss.
5: Wow. Yeah, it's pretty masterful.
3: Then he tells me, yet he forgives me fully for my actions and he but he deserves what why I'm not answering his phone calls because but Christ didn't deserve that Don't De- deserve what he got but it's all messed up it's really messed up
5: yeah the, this kind of letter coming from a, a spiritual authority figure to a young a young girl at Crown College who's not this is the first time I've ever seen it. I've been married to her for 19 years, and I can't believe that it's just the way that he tries to manipulate. Yeah. And to make her feel guilt for his his sin as a 47-year-old man, unbelievable.
4: And he also used his daughter's. Because yeah. he knew of the relationship they had as friends, and he said, you know, that were hurt, too, because uh, of her actions. And yeah. um, he used everything he could think of, pull out of the hat, to make her feel bad and guilty.
5: Yeah, and in the letter, he, commet- he confesses an extramarital love that he has for her. So, hmm. I mean, it's right there in black and white.
4: And then later he wrote a letter to Jenny that we have. And it's basically the same thing that he, he was sorry he betrayed her trust, but, and And then he he quotes a lot of scripture and tells her, please do not let Satan fill your head and please forgive me.
3: And then if we don't forgive
4: him, that we're the ones that are going to be wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because you'll lose that perfect fellowship with God and answered prayer.
0: That's what he calls them. Wow. And I honestly, honestly, it leaves me speechless every time I hear something like this or hear quotes like that coming from pastors.
5: American, you don't have to include anything. I, I, I wasn't present for all of this. I'm here because my wife asked me to be yeah. there. But uh, we've talked about this exactly two times in 19 years. The first time was right before we got married. And. The second time was whenever I mentioned to that I had found your platform that you're giving these victims for this eye of the culture. And listening to your podcast, I, I realized that what happened was was a cover-up, essentially. Mm-hmm. Men were, was presented like, she's foggy on the details now. She wouldn't have been foggy on them in September 6, 2001, when this all was she could probably could have took you right to the spots. And this was presented to men that had the authority that should have just picked up the phone and called the police or, but it was never done. And unfortunately with that mentality that Kathy and her mother and her sister had, it was, you're supposed to handle this stuff in house or something. And, and it just, uh, and they actually used Brenda as a, she was basically a pawn and a scheme. It's almost, but anyway, you don't have to include any of that, but that's what.
0: Uh, I'm going to include that. I think that's important. No. That's
5: what happened? Because you know what the consequences were? This man abused, uh, groomed, and then abused and molested a child. And authority figures authority spiritual authorities within the ifb it was brought to their attention and it's past the buck
0: yeah you
5: now with clarence sexton it seems and then when it finally ends up with mike and patrick creed it's just uh, make a phone call telling them to step down as a result how do we? I mean, who knows? And I was how many. made
3: to feel like after after he stepped down, there was a man sent from that church, John Rediger, to take over, kind of candidate to pastor the church, and he—he was a
5: Hiles guy.
3: Yeah, and he brought over one of the elder ladies of the church. Her name was Lois. To my house,
4: to mm-hmm. me, she to was my still my like calling. I was. Yeah, I
3: wasn't there to talk to my mom and the things that came out of her mouth i it hurt me deeply because it was like almost like it was my fault he did what he did because her words were well he is a man and your daughters were always around him and on his lap like his daughters and and like blaming me like that was that's the reason why he did what he did to me. I tempted yeah. him.
5: It's the child's fault. Yeah, that, her yeah. fault. She seduced mm-hmm. a forty-seven-year-old. Yeah, I,
4: I didn't even know what it seduced meant. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> trying to make peace in the church.
5: And, 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 and yeah, one more thing I just want to mention was that when Brenda announced to the church that what was going on, the pastor's wife said, "What was it?"
3: She said, oh, no, not again. Oh,
5: no, not again. He had come from Pennsylvania under shady circumstances. This was obviously all before the internet. And we've all had suspicions as to why did he, how did he end up in Ken Island? And were there other victims? Has this man left victims everywhere he's been? And are there more victims after Kathy? Yeah, like We don't by, know. oh, no, not
3: again. What does that mean?
5: Yeah. No. And we she gonna...
3: looked at my mom when my mom came in to tell the church what was going on. She saw, my mom came in the doors and and she made eye contact with her down the hallway and she gave her this look like, don't you do anything.
5: Hmm.
3: do mess anything up. Like she was afraid of her life just crumbling again or whatever happened before. I don't know what there it was never told why they left, but they have an older son that I think knows. And he has a blog. Um, yeah. And he wrote about all, he wrote about a, abuse and how women don't need to uh, use the excuse that they're trying to save the church and take the abuse. And, but yet he never mentioned, he said that something like he knew he, said he was like
5: very intimately aware Yeah, you know, what stuff. suggested he was in, but he never aware. mentioned his father or, you
3: know, yeah. He never said that his father had done anything.
0: That bothers me so much when people say, Oh, I'm intimately aware of something, or I know firsthand how bad this can be. And, and I'm not speaking to victims. I, I think that there's everyone, has a right, and that's something I'm like ridiculously like not into pressuring people into sharing their stories. Like my first thing is, what do you want to do? What's your step? I'm a horrible podcaster in that sense, but I think it's more important that people make the right choice with their story, and it bothers me. I see a lot of it. I see a lot of people start anonymous websites or share things, and it's. If you know something, say something. If you're my dad is on staff at a church in Banning, California where there's a predator leading music every single Sunday and I talk about it, and that causes a lot of tension at <laughs> when I go visit like that causes a lot of tension, but you have to talk about it. And and not to get too far off track, but I guess my question wrapping up would be first of all, I want to say thank you for sharing your story. I think it's really important to to share. And I think it's going to help people. And every time there's a story like this shared, I can tell you firsthand, I have two, three, four people reach out to me who sometimes from the same church, but many times just from the same circumstances that played out. Looking at it now, sharing your story, you've got people on both sides of you that love you, care about you. What is the next step for you? What's your for speaking to people who may have experienced the same thing, what would you say to them closing this out? What would you encourage them to do or feel or, or think about?
3: It did affect me in a lot of ways and I suppressed it so much because mm-hmm. I didn't want it to affect my marriage and i didn't want it to be weird when i finally found somebody to marry and i didn't want to be weird when i was dating but of course at crown college dating was like sitting with someone in church with a hymnal between the two of you that was dating and that's fine but i just had a lot of emotions and i don't know if you want to say ghost in my head about the manipulation and the the abuse and i didn't want it to define me Hmm. because that was only a little part of my life, and I had gone through a lot of hard things in my life, and I think, like you said, you, when someone goes through bad things, they just try to, It's I think it's a blessing that they just blank out about a lot of things, oh. and I had been through some things in my life, which we won't go through, but it's caused me to not remember some things, so I only remember the really good and the really bad, but I didn't want what happened to me in that short period of time to take over my whole entire life because I was still young and I was I wanted to get married and I wanted to find the right person and and I ended up finding the right person at Crown College and he's right here <laughs> <laughs> and and we've got our story together is really crazy but it's brought us here now and he like my husband he we were in the independent Baptist movement, even after that, we actually went to a different level. We went deeper. Yeah.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: So we went to the kind of independent bath after we left ground college, he went to Georgia.
5: We ended up you familiar with Sammy Allen.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
5: Uh, yeah. That's where we that's, went. That's where we were for five years after that. Yeah.
3: So we went there yeah. and basically that was our life. Every camp meeting, every revival every time the doors were open that we lived and breathed that church and those people and i don't know if it was because of how i don't know it's like different the independent Baptist churches in maryland were so different from the south and we went even deeper which he's from mobile and that's where we live now we live not
4: until there. you found me
3: pastor williamson <laughs>
5: Oh,
4: yeah. <laughs> I got involved.
5: <laughs> yeah.
3: we, have, we stayed in it for a really long time until 2007. And then we totally cut ties. No. With, we slowly started to cut ties with Independent Baptist Church. My husband was called to help start a church in Middlesbrough, Kentucky. And we left the tr- Sammy Allen's Church and we went there for two, two and a half years. And when we were there, that's when we started questioning things. And like we were out of that echo chamber and we just were like, wait, what does the Bible really say about this? Because we went from strict things within the IFB at Crown College about modesty and skirt wearing skirts and all that to Everything being preached against. No TV, no movies, no alcohol, like nothing. Like basically everything was a sin. And unless you were in this box, you were not right.
0: Yeah.
3: No. And so we were like out on our own and we started questioning things and it just all just went, whoa. And then we both, what are we doing with our lives? We just wasted our entire youth. We were so upset and depressed in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, Mm. trying to like pastor this church. And uh, it was, and my mother had bought a house there and we were like living there. Like she was planning on retiring and moving there. And it was just like, it all came apart. And we were just, we had to tell my mom, sorry, but we're leaving and uh, you're gonna have to sell your house. And then leaving means you quit the ministry and you've quit on God because that's not God's will. If you don't yeah. die in the ministry of what you're doing, what God called you to do, then you have failed. That's how we were taught. Basically, that's how you're made to feel. And we knew that when we left, we would probably be shunned and relationships would be broken. Yeah. And that was another devastating thing to me because of Oh, this shattered in my life when I was younger with divorce. And now this shattered because I was abused. And now this has shattered because we are leaving. And it's, I felt like so much loss and I, I could not get over it. It took me a long time. Like I can tell you, I probably cried every other month and just had a major breakdown because we were shunned. We were, we don't, no one calls us anymore.
4: And that's fine. But there were ugly things yeah there was a lot of we
3: were used as sermon examples we were told we were but it and but i know there was everything happens for a reason and i'm really thankful where we are at now in life we don't presently attend any church at all as far as like being a member or whatever i don't i do have a relationship with the lord personally And that's important to me. Like my core beliefs are still there, Yeah. but I don't prefer to go to church because of a lot of reasons. Yeah. It's (laughs) so
0: much, it's so much trust. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And, but my husband and kind of through all that, he found himself and I've, and he tried to get... through his depression and struggles with all that and he turned to art and music and he's a successful artist musician songwriter now and he does that full time and i help him and and i can see the pieces why things happened and that's helped me a lot like it makes sense now and i just want people to know that just because you go through this hard time in your in your life and abuse that you can be strong as you possibly can and tell yourself that's not going to take over my life and define the person who I am. And I'm, I did care about the person that I married and I really believe God brought me aid and he put us together and he's blessed us with three children and we're super happy. He's my best friend and We've, it'll be 19 years in May that we've been married. We got married in 2003. I was 20 and he was 22. (laughs) So we got married young and I'm good. And this, uh, talking to you has, like I said, I've tried to bury this thing. And he's talked to me before about, you've got to tell somebody, you've just got to get it out. Of course, he would never make me do that. But he was just saying, if you could do it, it would help you and someone else. Mm. And it's taken me a long time to talk myself into it and get the courage. Because when I first started bringing it up again with him, I could do nothing but just cry the entire time.
5: Yeah. So, You're the first person that's heard this story outside of just me and our mm. mom or sister. I do
3: remember... In Sammy Allen's church. Yeah. I do remember <laughs> when I was at Sammy Allen's church, I remember feeling comfortable enough to skim the surface, but not go into detail and yeah. know my pastor's wife, Miss Sister Jimmy Lou, is what we called her. And I did remember telling her. And she never also was, she, she was probably taught the same thing keep it in. Yeah. don't take it to the secular world. They're not, they won't handle it biblically or whatever. And I remember telling her and her saying, and just explaining how stupid I felt for letting it happen and, and how gullible I was and how I just let people run over me all the time. I was just ranting.
5: Blaming yourself for, for, yeah,
3: I made I, it, I for a long time. I thought it was my fault because I have an elder in the church who I looked up to, a lady, come to my mother and tell her, "No wonder he's a man," mm-hmm. and like blaming me, like I did something wrong, and that messed up my head with what he told me and how he groomed me, and then having the. One of the people, I thought that if I got this out, like his own wife that I loved would say, oh, my gosh, and be on my side. And I'm, and tell me she was sorry that it happened, even though it was not her fault. Yeah. But please something. Just tell me something. She, she, I never, ever heard from her, ever. She never said a word to me. She no. never said, sorry she never said goodbye, she never, nothing. And I was just devastated and felt like I was like, just thrown to the wolves because she never said a word to me. And then here I thought, okay, surely this lady, this elder in the church will say something and help me. And and then it's thrown back in my face again, it's my fault. And I was just like, my head could not, I could not wrap my head around that. Like, I was just like, I have been, they have all failed me. <laughs> I yeah. felt like the only person in my corner was my mom.
4: Yeah. And
3: at least she believed me and she was taking my side. I just yeah. couldn't believe it. And so telling other people in the church was almost like fear of them saying, oh my gosh, like you did that? That happened to yeah. you? Like it was my fault. Yeah. And so I, I buried it was't I was ashamed, I was made to feel ashamed, not I was I'm not ashamed because I didn't do anything, but I was made to feel ashamed and made to question maybe I did do something wrong. And I was made to feel like alone in, to where I couldn't tell anybody. The only person that knew was my mom and my sister no. And I was I did I was embarrassed and then I also had these thoughts going through my head like, I'm tainted, like I'm damaged goods or something. And I was, I felt sorry for him, like I had, that this happened to me. And he assured me that it's not, I was a child, it was not my fault. But I even told, like, I told my pastor's wife, and she was just like, girl, you got to let that go. And you just need to get some grit and gall. And meaning just get some grit and tell people that I,
5: that was the yeah. advice. And that I was, was like that was the advice that was given. Get some grit and gall.
3: And I said I thought that was good advice because I did need to hear that in a way. But at the same time, I was like she didn't help me though. No. But she right. it's probably not her fault. She probably yeah. <laughs> also was taught to let it tell the pastor.
0: That's the thing is it's hard to find closure in these environments of people that are all trained the same way because you're sure. never going to get the valid, And that's what it, we keep circling. There was never the validation that what happened was wrong. Like even they get some grit and move it's, there's nothing, I forget the quote, but it says, it says there's no abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation. And I think that's what gets missed so often as we look at people and why do you feel so bothered by this? Or why don't you move on? Or why don't you do this? And it's, this was a Very traumatic. Like you said, it's one piece after another, falling apart, shattering. You just need somebody to say, that's really bad. (laughs) That is a very bad situation.
3: When I told him, he said, that's really bad. I knew my mom said it, but someone other than my mom and my sister, he was the first one to say, hold up, that ain't
5: right. These letters, this is the first time I've seen these letters. And it just, it fills me with such... I don't want to have hate in my heart, but it's this. I don't know how I read that without getting hate in my heart. So no. I don't know how to handle it. But
4: When Kathy told me when it was initially exposed, we didn't talk about it again. She finished college with Abe and she came home and prepared for her wedding. And then they lived in Georgia and then they lived in Kentucky and then came to Alabama. And I was in Maryland the whole time. And we never talked about it again. And she suppressed that. And now listening to her saying she trusted her pastor's wife enough to talk to her and not getting any help, that really makes me sad for her. And she suppressed it again until it was, what, two months ago. And uh, so for some reason, we started, something happened and she started talking about it. And I don't know Uh if it was because she and Abe had a conversation first that brought it up, but she opened up a little more.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I hope, I know this is a strange format to share and I don't take it for granted that you felt comfortable sharing. And I, I really do. I don't take it for granted that you felt comfortable to share your story. And and I hope that sharing it and knowing your side of the story is out there, it gives some form of closure or validation. And again, I just want, you to know, there's going to be people that reach out after this. I get it every time I have one of these stories, that's going to reach out and say that they relate in some way or they experience something similar. And I think that's really powerful. And I, I just hope, you know, that I hope it's going to help a lot of people.
3: That's what kind of gave me the courage to do it because I want to help other people. <laughs> it's just what I do.
0: Yeah. That seems to be the uh, seems to be your personality trait, <laughs> appearing time and again. Yeah, but,
5: uh, and we, we know we know that Timothy George has has gone on preaching.
4: Mm-hmm. We
5: don't we don't know if he pastors or if he is a youth pastor or if he's in a church in some way. But we know that he was on a roster to as a homeless preacher in Baltimore and the Baltimore mission so we know he didn't that after the abuse and it was all with Mike Creed on the phone we know that day he didn't leave the ministry we know he continues in the ministry we don't know to what extent but mm. he continued after that and if you you know had a mission you can only imagine how many vulnerable young women you'd be around
2: yeah so
5: uh, who knows how many more victims there may be?
2: Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on com.